It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Charles Payne. I'm Kat Timph. I'm Stuart Varney. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. I'm Dave Anthony. The U.S. has taken out al-Qaeda's leader, the successor to Osama bin Laden, after tracking him down back in Afghanistan. We cannot allow Afghanistan to become the breeding ground for terrorism again, like it did before 9-11. Elisa Brady. Memories are strewn across a flood-ravaged landscape in eastern Kentucky, which has a grueling recovery ahead. We're going to be all right. It's going to be a long time, and some people won't ever recover financially or psychologically. And I'm Dr. Mark Siegel. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. There's one less terrorist in the world. Justice has been delivered. And this terrorist leader is no more. President Biden authorized the drone strike that killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, who had led al-Qaeda since 2011. One of the masterminds of several terror attacks targeting the U.S., including 9-11. No matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. The U.S. had tracked al-Zawahiri back to Afghanistan. It moved to downtown Kabul to reunite with members of his immediate family. And the president insisted that they and other civilians not be harmed. So National Security Council spokesman John Kirby tells Fox. That put, uh, you know, uh, an additional uh, demand on uh, the intelligence and counterterrorism right. uh, community to make sure we could do this in a way which only got him and nobody else. The reaction to the U.S. taking out al-Zawahiri was mixed among Republicans. First and foremost, it's a big deal that he's dead. And, that you know, we kept true to our word that we, we, we would track him down. Congressman John Katko is the ranking member or lead Republican on the House Homeland Security Committee. The troubling thing is that Afghanistan is al-Qaeda firmly entrenched within its borders right now. And when you have the head of al-Qaeda living in downtown Kabul a year after we pulled out precipitously, this is exactly the concerns that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. And and was that a surprise to you where he was taken out? He's on, he's on a balcony in a residential area of Kabul, as you mentioned, the capital. And he, he's not really, it seems like he's almost hiding in plain sight. And, the, and, and it's in the home of a senior Taliban leader. Yes, it is. And that's the concern. And so let's take a step back and remember the sequence here. Al-Qaeda planned and executed the 9-11 terror attacks. Al-Qaeda uh, was the number one pariah in the world for many, many years after that and still is today. Uh, we went after al-Qaeda. We went into Afghanistan because al-Qaeda was there and using Afghanistan as training uh, training camps for this terrorist act on 9-11 as well as others. It's against that backdrop we got to look at this. So you fast forward to last year and President Biden said, quote, Look, let's put this thing in perspective. What interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with al-Qaeda gone, end quote? Are you kidding me? So now he's saying the reason they pulled out is because al-Qaeda wasn't there anymore. And, of course, a year later, we know al-Qaeda is not only there. Their head of al-Qaeda is living in plain sight in downtown Kabul. That is exactly the concerns we had with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And uh, this exactly the concerns I have today is that Afghanistan, once again, 
can become a breeding ground for uh, international terror training and activities. That's a huge concern. John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, he told Fox on Tuesday, look, yeah, there are al-Qaeda members and terrorists in Afghanistan, but not in large numbers. We knew even before we left Afghanistan that there was going to be a small number of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. They already were there. Um, We still believe the number is, is very small, but that they're there. Well, when you have the head of your terror network in Afghanistan, I don't think he can possibly say that with a straight face. And to me, I I just completely disagree with that. This is a very troubling development. It's great that they got him, but it's also a deeply troubling development. And let's not forget, one of the top leaders in Afghanistan is uh, the leader of what's called the Haqqani Network. The Haqqani Network is a terror group that's affiliated with al-Qaeda and is uh, involved in terrorist activities themselves. The head of the accounting network is the interior minister in Afghanistan, and the accounting network is the ones that are working with al-Qaeda within Afghanistan. That's deeply troubling developments. Now, we still don't have, like, American boots on the ground. This was a drone strike. We didn't tell, supposedly, the Taliban anything like this was happening. Obviously, we weren't going to telegraph what we were going to do. There was concern that the U.S. would not be able to carry out anti-terror operations after leaving Afghanistan. So on the other side of the argument, at least we can say we can still do that kind of intelligence without Americans there, correct? To some extent, absolutely. And like I said at the outset, I credit the administration for going after them in this manner and taking him out. That's a strong message. It's great. But let's not forget, when you put when they pulled out, they, they, they lost a lot of allies in their intelligence gathering apparatus. And um, they, they got they got a, uh, they took out the head of Al-Qaeda. But at the same token, we have nowhere near the intelligence gathering capabilities that we had when we had boots on the ground there. And no one's saying to sacrifice another soldier in Afghanistan. But we had a base. The base was secure. The soldiers were secure. And it allowed them to uh, work and develop a network with allies that remained within Afghanistan. Those allies had been purged. Those allies had been largely killed or they ran away from Afghanistan. And now you have you have the fox in the hen house, that being al-Qaeda in, in the al-Qaeda network. And that's deeply troubling. A year ago, as the Taliban took over Afghanistan and the hasty U.S. troop evacuation turned chaotic, President Biden said, We went to Afghanistan for the express purpose of getting rid of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, as well as, as well as getting Osama bin Laden. And we did. Five months later, he defended the withdrawal. I make no apologies for what I did. Had we stayed and I had not pulled those troops out, we would be asked to put somewhere between 20 and 50,000 more troops back in. Because the only reason more Americans weren't being killed than others is because the last president signed an agreement to get out by May the 1st. President Trump had long advocated pulling our troops out. Great nations do not fight endless wars. Saying during the 2019 State of the Union address he had accelerated our negotiations to reach, if possible, a political settlement in Afghanistan. Which led to the Doha Peace Agreement the U.S. signed in 2020 with the Taliban, which had promised not to harbor al-Qaeda terrorists. Back to Congressman Katko. I disagreed with uh, President Trump back then, and so did many within the, within their Congress that were involved in national security issues and, and, and foreign policy issues. So we, we disagree with that. And um, regardless, the manner in which 
Biden pulled out made us much less safer and made us look much weaker. And I would dare say that Russia was looking at how Biden handled Afghanistan and felt no impediments to him going into uh, the Ukraine because he saw the weakness that we projected with respect to Afghanistan and and the treasure we left behind and the 13 soldiers that were killed because of the chaos that they created. Instead of using the Bagram Air Base as a way to more methodically withdraw people from Afghanistan, they, they chose to go to the airport and it became a chaotic scene. All that has played into how other bad actors around the world are viewing us and we're, they're viewing us in Russia as weak. And of course, we did nothing when Russia went into Ukraine. We're sending weapons there, which is great. But the only thing the administration said before we went into Russia, when Russia went into Ukraine was, no matter what you do, we're not going to come in uh, to oppose you. That's not strength. Um, and you, you never tip your hand like that. So now what? We believe the Taliban may have been helping him hide, right, in the capital there. Yes. What does the U.S. do? Should we punish the Taliban? What should we do to try to send an even bigger message about al-Qaeda safe havens harboring terror? Listen, in all credit to the Biden administration, they sent a message, uh, a relatively strong one, when they took him out in, in Afghanistan. But we are not there anymore. And uh, they will laugh at us if we say we're going to come back in if you don't cut it out. They're not going to. My biggest concern is how do we recognize the danger that Afghanistan is becoming yet again? And how are we going to be able to try and monitor the activity within Afghanistan from afar? And it's back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, The network isn't there. We've got to figure out ways to try and strengthen that network, if at all possible, because it, we cannot we cannot allow Afghanistan to become the breeding ground for terrorism again, like it did before 9-11. So this airstrike is the message. It's pretty much all we can do, in your opinion. I think that's right. I, I think that's right, unfortunately. And we do need to try and strengthen our intelligence networks to the extent they even exist anymore within Afghanistan. And that's, that's very, very difficult with the Taliban, to say the least. It is really striking the difference. 2011, we have that group of... Uh, special forces troops who go into the home, the house in Pakistan and shoot Osama bin Laden at close range. This one is a drone strike and these hellfire missiles, they're really amazing. What's amazing is um, in Syracuse, New York is my district. We have one of the MQ-9 Reaper drone bases. Uh, We train pilots for these uh, drones and uh, so I've been out there many times. Those drones can stay in the air for hours and hours and sometimes even as long as a day, circling at 50,000 feet with the Hellfire missiles or any missiles they want on them and waiting and waiting and waiting for the intelligence to be set. So, yes, bad guy is at corner of 3rd and Main Street, and he is right there, uh, drop, letting electric missiles go. So it, we do it, it, the, the technology is amazing, but you still have to have the intelligence on the ground and um, we had some, obviously, in this case, but uh, my concern is that, that we're creating a vacuum within Afghanistan. And we clearly did because Al-Qaeda is back and back there strong. And it's incredible that the missile itself, when it hits, it just pretty much only deals with the target. Like in, in this case, Al-Zawahiri, his family was fine. It didn't blow up the house. It's really something. Correct. I mean, the missile, as I understand it, right before it hit its target, released a fan blade, if you will, uh, that that kind of most likely made mincemeat of uh, the Al-Qaeda target, which it should. But 
others in the house from what i'm reading the preliminary reports no one else was killed and it's you know family members and others that were in the house so that is a pretty remarkable remarkably effective tool and all right. Lastly, you, you believe that the al-Qaeda threat is real. What about ISIS? We haven't heard much about ISIS in the post-U.S. Uh, deployment in Afghanistan. Where are we with well, it's ISIS? Funny, it's funny to say that there's a lot of reports that ISIS is still there. In fact, people within the administration have admitted since Biden made his comments last year that both al-Qaeda and ISIS, to some degree, exist within Afghanistan. And that was always a concern is, we don't have the boots on the ground to have a better, have a really good idea of who's there and what's going on. But we know that ISIS does have some sort of, sort of a presence there. ISIS is still, um, you know, in uh, in Yemen and other areas, and they're they're still rattling their saber. They were nowhere near what they were when they had their large swath of territory in Syria and Iraq. But um, they are still a force to be reckoned with, and they can metastasize again at any time especially when you have a breeding ground that's uncontested like you do in Afghanistan right now. Congressman John Katko, lead Republican ranking member on the House Homeland Security Committee from New York. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. This is Dr. Mark Siegel with your Fox News commentary coming right up. For more than a week now, Kentucky has lived in a grim new reality as flash flooding caused by torrential rain swept away homes and lives, followed again and again by more rain. I mean, <laughs> everything's destroyed. We've got nothing left. As of Tuesday, the flooding was blamed for at least 37 deaths, though more than a thousand people had been rescued. And while the search continued for others still isolated by flooding or mudslides, Governor Andy Bashir said cell phone service was being restored and most people reported missing to state police had been found. The governor praising FEMA's efforts to get mobile registration centers up and running after President Biden approved a disaster declaration. There's no uh, red or blue. There's no team Democrat or Republican. Right now, there's only Team Kentucky, and Team Kentucky needs to be there for Eastern Kentucky. Donations are also pouring into a variety of groups, including the newly created Team Eastern Kentucky Flood Relief Fund. But triple-digit heat is now descending on the region where so many have lost so much. you got to understand out here, it's the terrain is very tough, and then you mix in, you know, historic flooding. Fox News correspondent Jeff Paul has been on the ground in and around Hazard, Kentucky, a city of just over 5,000 people and one of the hardest hit areas. Some of these people, as, as we've seen visually, have had to be airlifted out, not even just to you know get to safety, but just to get things to live because they don't have running water. They don't have electricity. Their food was either swept away or They've you know, run out of food, so there's some really desperate people out here for sure. And it's hard to even tell what things are, if that makes any sense. I mean, if you've ever witnessed or felt or experienced or saw what happens after a tornado where it's just a pile of, of bricks or wood or, or metal that's been bent and trees that have been knocked down, that's that, but not even in a path. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's so widespread, and it's just it's hard to put into words Everywhere you look, something is destroyed. And for the people 
who somehow managed to, to not have their house destroyed, there's almost like a sense of guilt. Like, you know, people ask if they're okay and they're just like, don't worry about me. You know, I got a house somehow. So it's, it's, uh, it's just, it's hard to put into words. I, I cannot explain just the vast amount of things that have been destroyed by not only water, but just ripping things down as if it was a tornado. I know FEMA and the Red Cross are on the ground helping survivors. What is that process like, especially for the people who've lost everything? Where are they going? It's a really slow moving process. I'll have to tell you this. I mean, if this is any footnote to how the government works and that's just the way it is. But, you know, last night at the hotel we're staying at, which is about two hours from Hazard, Kentucky, in the town of Somerset, the uh, FEMA people just started showing up there and booking out the rooms. The hotel attendant there was telling me, yeah, all of our rooms just got booked out tonight. So now they're here. That's good. They're here. But, you know, this, like, as you mentioned, it's been going on for five or six days and it's, it's always just a slow machine to get the proper people in place. I think part of it too, is just getting to them. You know, that's part of the challenge. There are people out here trying to help, but sometimes they just don't have the right vehicle or the right way to get out there to get to some of these people. And if you've ever been in Eastern Kentucky or West Virginia or areas around here, you could, you could probably tell someone, you know, the trees out here are unlike anywhere else. They are so thick. They're extremely high. So there could be people within, you know, an area that you can't even see if you were flying overhead or driving by because the vegetation out here is just so thick. And now they've got so much damage, not just, to, you know, the homes lost, but roads, bridges, buildings, other infrastructure. Was there any way to know that this storm was going to cause this much damage, that it would get, you know, this out of control with the flooding? I think part of it did catch a lot of people off guard because if you talk to folks out here, they say they're used to sort of the rainy season when the creek beds get higher and higher around February. And so here we are, you know, at the beginning of August, this started at the end of July. I think that in and of itself sort of caught everybody off guard. And I can tell you in the past when I've covered flooding events, it's amazing how fast things change overnight. You go to bed one way. And this is what happened in Hurricane Harvey in, in Houston. You go to bed, the streets are just kind of kind of rainy, and then you wake up and you're stuck. You can't you can't get out. And that's what happens when rain just pours on top of rain, and it has nowhere to go. There's no nowhere it's going down. It's just it's sitting in the creek. That's overflowing. Sitting on top of land. That's overflowing. It's got nowhere else to go. One man who's lived in Kentucky his whole life, Jeremy Noble, is calling out some of the world's richest people, including Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos, urging them to help one of the poorest parts of the country. It's hard to say that anything good could come of it, but just an awareness of the people down here that they're not lost. They're good people that deserve good opportunities just like everybody else. Noble says his house narrowly escaped flooding, but Travis Bowling, who also lives in Jackson, has lost a lot. The floodwaters got up about two feet deep inside my house above the finished floor. Um, the home's going to be considered a total loss. Uh, then we've got sheds outside with, you know, lawn tools, all that stuff. The sheds, one shed we tied to a tree with a rope, uh, saved it, but it's overturned, just junk piled up. Uh, well, the <laughs> things piled up everywhere in it. The other shed uh, is against the back door of the house. Uh, we had a, a semi-in-ground pool 
uh, with the deck all the way around it washed away. Um, and uh, my wife and I today, we were cleaning out my kids' rooms. We sent my kids to, with the grandparents and uh, cleaned out their rooms. We didn't want them to see us throwing away their personal items that are beyond salvage, you know. Wow. Has, has this just completely put life on hold for you and for others around you? I mean, I guess it really depends on the maybe the, the, the level of devastation in some areas. Yeah, so all of eastern Kentucky, you know, in the mountains, uh, there's a river between or a stream between every mountain. So it's widespread devastation. Uh, the school my kids go to, the, the school enrollment is like 350, and they have 37 kids that are displaced from their homes. And most of the homes were, a lot of them were modular or mobile homes that just completely floated away. Um, mine did not float away other than the outside stuff. But you could see, you know, outbuildings and homes and belongings floating down the river behind my house. How has this tragedy for the state affected you on a personal level? I mean, you've, you've said your home is going to be a total loss. But I mean, psychologically, emotionally, it can't be easy because just getting from one day to the next right now it is nothing like it was. It's devastating. It, it really is uh, devastating. And it's hard uh, psychologically to go in and see things. I know my daughter was brokenhearted because she had her great-grandmother's Bible and it got destroyed. Um, some other sentimental items, you know, the things, things that belong to family members uh, that really bothers you that you lose. Pictures, that family pictures and things like that. Um, we will be okay. Uh, we have faith in God that he will take care of us and we'll eventually recover emotionally and financially. And, uh, we're going to be all right. It's going to be a long time and some people won't ever recover financially or psychologically. I think my family is going to be okay. Uh, but some people got wiped out a year ago and, in a similar event that was about four feet the water was four feet lower than it was this time, about a year and a half ago. What about the the local and federal government response, including FEMA? From what you've seen, do you think enough is being done? I couldn't say we applied to FEMA and were denied. Someone told me you have to be persistent and reapply, but uh, there's people a lot worse off than I am. So, uh, Which is really saying something because your home, you know, appears to be a total loss. That's correct. Um, I didn't lose any people. That's the big thing. And we're, we're safe. We live, uh, our church has taken us in. We have, we have a, one of the things we like to do for recreation is to camp. So I have a small camper and we're living in a camper. Uh, my church let us take the camper to the church where they have running water. So in the camper, we have, you know, a roof over our head, beds, um, a lot of people don't have that much. I saw some tents along the railroad tracks a couple miles from here where people were living in tents. Um, there, there's places where bridges are washed out and people can't even get out to uh, get to safety or whatever. What else would help people on a day-to-day basis right now? Probably um, 
compassion, people showing they care, people boots on the ground coming to help people clean up and, and put their lives together. Um, if you can't uh, find one of those organizations like Samaritan's Parish or Christian Aid Ministries, and if you can, I uh, request that that money go to the flood victims down here. Um, but uh, other than that, people just need prayer and a lot of support and a helping hand as they try to clean up and, and clean the mud up and do mold remediation in their homes. Uh, so people are going to have to be doing that. And the one thing we, the one thing, thing we're figuring out right now is uh, people's homes that they paid, you know, a hundred thousand for 10 years ago to replace that home now is two or three times that. So it's, for some people, they're just not going to be able to afford to do that. And if they were insured for what it's worth, they're way uninsured now because of inflation. Mm. Is there anything that you want people to know about Kentucky or that you hope that they will come to know with all of the attention that this catastrophe has brought to the state? The folks of Kentucky are, are very... Uh, resourceful people. Um, yes, there's a lot of uh, folks here that uh, live very simple lives, but they are some of the people that are the some of the best people on earth and work as hard as everybody everywhere. We usually just don't make as much money as everybody everywhere else. <laughs> um, they're resilient. Um, they'll bounce back. Uh, and like I said, it'll be a while, but we appreciate everybody that's coming down to help out, and uh, that's about it. Well, Travis Bowling, I know you have a long road ahead, but um, we certainly wish you and your family and your state um, all the best, and you have our sympathies for everything that's happening. All right. Thank you very much. In other news, I'm Gianna Gelosi. Soaring inflation has an impact on people all across the country, and new data is showing family pets are paying the price. Animal Care Centers of New York City says owner surrenders of dogs and cats are up 25 percent compared to last year. The organization's director told Fox News Digital the reason is housing. She says pet parents in the Big Apple are moving to places that don't accept pets or aren't pet friendly, often because they can't afford their current home or they lost their jobs. The rising price of pet food, supplies and other essentials compounding the issue. But this isn't a problem that's unique to New York City. The ASPCA estimates that the average annual cost of a dog is $1,391. The average annual cost of a cat is $1,149. And that's without factoring in medical procedures. Total pet costs were up 7.1% year to date in June on the Consumer Price Index. That's according to Pet Age. That's a business to business pet news company. National shelter data from Shelter Animals Count shows from January. January to June of 2022, the number of surrendered pets rose from 31,606 to 38,066 at over 1,000 shelters. 
Other cities with high rates of surrender include Akron, Ohio, Jacksonville and Orlando, Florida, Stockton, California and Houston, Texas, among others. In Jacksonville, an anonymous pet owner abandoned a 10-month-old dog at the John Roberts Dog Park in early July, left a note saying they were unable to keep the pet due to their rising rent in May. PETA reported a six-year-old dog named Baby Girl was abandoned by her unhoused owner in Wisconsin after seven animal shelters turned her away. The organization suggests doing everything you can to keep your pet, but to look into open admission shelters that accept any animal in need, regardless of adoptability, if you can no longer keep your pet. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Dr. Mark Siegel. Dr. Mark Siegel. What's on your mind? Though monkeypox has been reported in over 20,000 people in more than 75 countries, and the World Health Organization has called it a global health emergency, there are definite reasons to believe it doesn't have nearly the same potential as COVID. For one thing, monkeypox doesn't spread nearly as easily, and it may be identified by a characteristic pustular or vesicular rash, which generally occurs three days after the onset of flu-like symptoms. Isolation of affected individuals and tracing their contacts is imperative and far easier to accomplish than with COVID, which often spreads asymptomatically and has become more transmissible with each emerging Omicron subvariant. Will monkeypox become another HIV? The answer is again a resounding no. Though monkeypox is spreading through the male, gay, and bisexual communities, with more than 99% of those who have acquired it so far being men who have had relations with other men, according to the CDC. And though the numbers are clearly being underestimated, much as they were for HIV and AIDS in the 1980s and 1990s, with the risk of spread into the larger community in both cases, nevertheless, there are essential differences. For one thing, we already have an effective vaccine for monkeypox, and we still don't have one for HIV. For another, for everyone who was more than 50 years old and received the old smallpox vaccine prior to 1972, there is likely at least partial protection against monkeypox. And we have an effective monkeypox treatment available, T-pox. While it took more than a decade for truly effective treatments to be developed for HIV, what monkeypox does share with HIV is the danger of stigmatization of the group spreading it the most, stigma always gets in the way of education and public health interventions. It doesn't matter what name we call the disease or whether we call it a national emergency or not. What matters is that we get out the Gineos vaccine, T-pox, and proper testing to all who need it. We are far behind where we should be, as federal, state, and local health departments underestimated the risk, at least initially. The CDC now has its emergency operations center going for monkeypox, and HHS has purchased over 7 million doses of the vaccine. Over 300,000 doses have been shipped so far, and another 700,000 doses are on the way, though it is clear that the vaccine will remain in short supply for months. In New York City, several hospitals have still not received their initial allotments, 
We can all recall the frustrations over limited supplies of the COVID vaccine early in 2021, and we are facing the same problem now with monkeypox. In fact, it seems we have learned some of the wrong basic lessons from COVID and are applying them to monkeypox. Fear and political posturing again predominate. Take the place of tools and supply. Instead of this, the medical community needs to rise up and treat and protect those who are sick and those who are most at risk. We have the tools we need to beat monkeypox. We just need to get them into the right hands in time. Dr. Mark Siegel, Fox News. Listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.